everybody. This is Mark Scott. Thanks for joining me today. Our fifth episode of the Closer Than You Think podcast on Substack continues our 10-part series on the book called You Don't Have to Do That. In this episode, we consider how spiritual growth really happens and whether our typical church programs of discipleship help or hinder that growth. Join us as we examine chapter four of the book, and chapter four is entitled Class Dismissed. Now, chapter four is really the least um, sexy, least sensational of the chapters in a a way. Um, It deals with discipleship programs, church programs, church education. Um, But I really think it's the most important in one sense. The reality of how spiritual growth happens underlies all of these other topics that I address in the book because we've essentially built a system to fabricate spiritual growth, um, to mimic it, if you will, based on these other pieces that I address in the book. So there's a whole chapter on church and church structure, about the Bible and how we teach it, church leadership or clergy, pastors, whatever you want to call that, the idea of tithing or giving, church finance, uh, that whole aspect. And these elaborate discipleship programs, which I address in this chapter, All of these things, and that includes children's ministry, youth ministry, Sunday school, and so on, all of these things have been created and designed to produce, at least as we say, um, the main objective of growing closer to God or discipleship or spiritual growth. So this is the crux of the matter. And if the main objective is growing closer to God and we call that by different terms, discipleship, making disciples, spiritual growth, salvation, all of those aspects, if we say that is the main objective, then it matters greatly if how we say it happens is different from how God says it happens. And by God saying it happens, what I mean there is the way that the Bible presents it in a way as though it is coming from God or coming from Jesus. So this affects everything else in the book, everything. So all of those um, issues that I already mentioned. Now, when writing the book, there's several aspects to the process that you go through and and I go through. And one of them, besides the editor that I had do the full editing work of the book, um, one of the things my publisher required is that they had a couple of reviews of the book and so in one, um, one reviewer, one editor reviews the content of the book, and they're basically looking for anything outlandish, anything that is um, uh, that, that inappropriate to include in a book. And in that process, they're reviewing the content of the book, so not really editing it for the writing style or anything like that, but reviewing the actual content. And, and the editor, reviewer, uh, through my publishing company, um, that I went with was a professing Christian and, and told me this afterwards who was really challenged most of all in this book by this chapter. This is what he found to be the most thought-provoking chapter of the book because of his own Christian faith and background. It's also uh, the most difficult chapter for me and I'll explain that by reading an excerpt from page 50 in the book. So this is from chapter four, and here's what I write. 
Of all of the lessons I've had to unlearn, this one hurts the most. I have been a teacher in a church, in, I'm sorry, let me try that again. I have been a teacher in church settings or public schools for most of my adult life. Setting up an effective learning environment with efficient systems, relevant content, and engaging strategies has been my pursuit for years. So when I could structure church membership classes, teaching series, and programs as a Christian education director, I was in hog heaven. I went on to earn a master's in Christian education after my bachelor's in education. I hold a master's in educational administration, and I have served as an administrator in some form or at every level of the pre-K through 12 public school system. The popular approach to discipleship places emphasis on cognitive exercises aimed at obtaining knowledge through coursework in the form of Bible studies, Sunday school classes, and presentations, also known as sermons, which fits my personality perfectly. It was reassuring and comforting to know that God had a plan for discipleship that looked just like mine. There was only one problem. It didn't actually resemble Jesus' approach to making disciples at all. So let's get into several big components here that I take on in, in chapter 4. Let's first look at the characteristics of spiritual growth and outline those according to what Jesus lays out for us. And so one of the first things we know is that it is, while it is supernatural, we want to put emphasis on the natural part for a second. And what we learn, interestingly enough, and, and something that's almost never addressed, is that it happens automatically. So in Mark chapter 4 in the New Testament, there's this interesting parable that, that is used by Jesus about sowing seeds. It's a, the parable of the soil or the parable of the sower. Um, and it's about the seeds that fall on different ground and, and how that affects the growth. And Jesus finishes that parable and then says something very fascinating when his disciples begin to question and, and are confused by what he says, and he basically says something along the lines of, oh, if, if you don't get this, how are you going to get anything? If you don't understand this parable, um, I'm not sure how you're going to make sense of any of the parables, any of the teachings. So that's, that's pretty interesting, and it um, stands out to me because sometimes I still think I'm confused by it and can't make perfect sense of it. So it's very important. Let's just say that. And in the book, there's um, something I write on page 51, so I want to read that excerpt to you now. It says, If we continue in this chapter in Mark's gospel and move on to verses 26 through 33, Jesus teaches what the kingdom of God is like. He says, quote, A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. End quote. Jesus is telling his listeners how growth happens in the kingdom of God. The phrase all by itself in this passage is translated from the Greek word that gives us our word automatic. That's right. 
Jesus says the growth occurs automatically because of what is in the seed itself. And the person sowing the seed or spreading the message has no idea why or how the growth happens. <laughs> this is already kind of contrary to everything we do because we set up an entire spiritual growth system process program because we think we know how it can happen and we think we can direct how it can happen. Uh, this is what I did. I'll speak for myself. Big time, this is what I was all about. Now, Jesus talks about seeds often. And one of the takeaways from his lessons is that seeds seem to have everything they need inside of them from the beginning to become what they will become. So sunflower seeds don't become tomato plants, for example, because that's not what's in the seed from the beginning. The processes for growing the crops, uh, bringing the seeds to fruition, now that includes sunlight, it includes rain, time, all of these natural processes. And what we discover as we go through this New Testament um, imagery is that we can fool ourselves into thinking we are the ones in control of the growth when we actually have very little to do with it. There is a somewhat humorous take on this. If you um, look at an old, they used to have these old, um, an old series called Frog and Toad. And there's a Frog and Toad episode called The Garden, and it's just a few minutes long. And I'm going to include a link in the episode notes to it that you can find on YouTube. It's about four minutes long, and really you can skip the whole first minute because that's just the introduction. And uh, it just it shows this idea of how oh, sometimes we think it takes certain things to grow plants and grow crops, and in reality it takes other processes and we can fool ourselves into thinking that we did all of the work to make it happen when um, really a lot of the natural processes had to take place. Now, don't get me wrong. Somebody said this to, to me recently about gardening is, is hard work. It is hard work, but I think you'll get the context of what it means in the video and what I'm talking about here. Continuing on this theme of, of natural growth and how it really happens, we have John 15, which is a pivotal and profound chapter in the New Testament. In John 15, it's about the vine and branches. And what I do in the book is I take John 15 and, and basically break it down and show two columns to illustrate what God does versus what we do. And what we discover is that God's role is very active. He speaks, he gives, he loves, he chooses. Uh, all of the verbs, all of the action is coming from him. Our role in the process is very passive. We are made clean. We are changed based on what he calls us, all while simply remaining in him. So I encourage you to check that out in the book, the, the table that's there on page 52. And it really takes us back to the opening quote that I open the chapter with is from Deverne Fromke. And I want to read that quote to you now. He says this, Love always makes it as easy as it can. God is love, and he has made humanity as easy as he can. If life is not easy for us, it is because we are not quite right yet. 
And the easiest possible function a person can conceive of is the function of receptivity. You just receive what is poured on you. You just take it. Nothing else. If you look at nature, you see that a tree does not produce one leaf by activity. Vegetation receives. It has sunlight and moisture poured on it. What it receives, it uses, but activity is only a product of receptivity. Thus did I begin to learn the basic secret of life. One of my favorite um, shows is on Saturdays. It's called College Game Day, and it breaks down college football. Uh, they have one for basketball season two, which is also phenomenal. But it breaks down college football and all the things. And they have a segment on that show called You Had One Job, where they just look at different um, plays from the week or different things associated with the game where different people, they had just had one job to do and they kind of messed up that one thing, you know. Um, and I think that is what I think of when I think of what we've done with Christianity. It's, it's the New Testament is kind of God's way of saying you have one job. You have one job and that is to remain in me. You have one job. We have one job that's to remain in Christ. That's it. That's our one job. Don't screw that up by making it all these other things and complicating the matter. I really want to continue with this theme of what we find in nature because that's so prevalent throughout the Bible and so much so that I want to talk about the two trees analogy. And what we find in Genesis is that there's two trees right at the beginning, okay? There's the tree of life and then the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we start in Genesis and it's an illustration that works really well, whether you want to take Genesis literally or figuratively, um, the meaning is still very powerful. So one tree is about knowing good and evil. It drives us to categorize everything as good or bad. And it puts us on this religious treadmill that never stops us because we're always trying to do more good than bad, more of the right Christian stuff than the wrong sinful cause you go to hell stuff right? That's how people start living when they're associated with that tree. The other tree is just there for us to enjoy and receive life from. And you go all the way through to the end, and in, in the end, Revelation 22, only one of those trees remains. And this image of two distinct trees representing two distinct paths to God bookend our scriptures in, in the in Christianity for a reason. And we should never lose sight of this message, which makes up both the beginning and the end of our Christian history, both here and now, and also for eternity. One more characteristic of spiritual growth, as it is outlined. Spiritual growth is spiritual. <laughs> um, to state the obvious, but it's the obvious that we ignore sometimes. Spiritual, okay? And now this part goes out of order from the way I address it in the book, this section of, of the chapter. Uh, the section of this chapter on the nature of the gospel and uh, the, recognizing why it is described as foolishness and essentially understanding that it's undiscernible to the normal person because it is nonsense without enlightenment and revelation from the Spirit of God. 
So understanding that the gospel itself is spirit-led, spirit-revealed, spiritual in that sense. It is not simply a human condition. This is why the religious leaders of the day were the last ones to figure out God's true message and accept the gospel. Nothing Jesus did made sense from their point of view, nor should it have. Those people who were sensitive to the Spirit received the new revelation. They are the ones who accepted the gospel. They are the ones that repented, which is just a fancy high-dollar word for change their mind, and they literally thought differently as a result. So all of that unpacks how spiritual growth really happens, okay, and what it really looks like. And it is a process that is directed and led by God. Now, in the book, I talk about our discipleship programs, how we make disciples. And we have imitated the education plan that we see outside of the church. And we've made our spiritual growth look like academic growth, academic progress. It has all become about knowing more information. And you can read the book for more details of this as I unpack that more. But the effect of all of that um, is that we have the result of our, our spiritual growth and discipleship programs is that we have this hierarchy that is really antithetical to true spiritual growth because what we've ended up with is this belief that there are ranks of knowledge and mastery and expertise within Christianity. And so most churchgoers really believe that pastors, for example, know the Bible better than they do and that trained evangelists are better at leading people to Christ than they are, and that Sunday school teachers or children church leaders or youth pastors are best equipped to guide the next generation in issues of faith. We've bought into the idea, a frighteningly false one, that these people are learning to be better Christians than all the rest of us. And because we've set up our programs the way we have, and that we have colleges and seminaries and all of this, and it's even in my bio that I have these, a master's degree in Christian education, that it's not just about knowing more, but these people actually can access God better in a way or um, have to translate God for the rest of us. And we see it in, in simple things like prayer, you know, only believing that certain people are capable of praying to God, especially in public places. That's the result, that's the effect that we've had um, over the years from the way we've approached things. And then I juxtapose that, contrast that with God's method of making disciples. So what do we see in Scripture from the way he did it? Well, Jesus made disciples by spending time with them, living life daily. Now, this in and of itself was not anything extraordinarily exceptional because that's what rabbis did. Um, and there were groups that would follow a certain rabbi and, and live life with them. The whole process, though, is, is, is very raw because it's, it's happening and unfolding in real time. It's real. It's relational. And the other thing that we find in how it transfers over to the Christian way of doing things is it's wildly reproducible. Aspects of it 
were things anybody could do as they relate to others within their families, their households, uh, their, you know, I'll use the word networks uh, of communities. And this is how it was possible for disciples to make disciples. Fascinating thing about this is the more we learn about the brain now in the recent decades um, is that it aligns perfectly with brain science and it values the whole person and what we know about ourselves as humans, as integrated beings. I call it spiritual growth. That's the word I keep using as I'm talking about this, but really it's an integration of spiritual and physical and intellectual and emotional and social dimensions of our being. It's really all of our growth because all of those things are intertwined together. The more we learn about the brain and what it gives attention to, its priority for survival, relevance, novelty, all of these things, the more we know some of our typical traditional education approaches are ridiculously ineffective when it comes to just simply learning. And so that intellectual combines with the the spiritual and emotional piece because the brain kind of um, brings all of those things together. And we also see more and more how Jesus had it right from the beginning, which shouldn't be surprising to us at all. He knows how people learn best. And the results, so I went over the effects of our discipleship program, the way we did it, and what we ended up with as a result. But the results of the way Jesus does things is dramatically different. And so let me read um, another segment of the book here. It starts on page 57, and I write, If we are not careful, it is easy to exchange a relationship with the life-changing Lord for religion. It is not the way that people are set free. People are set free by encountering Christ. What we find in Scripture is a pattern of ordinary, untrained people being qualified for ministry and evangelism, not by attending classes and programs, but by an encounter with Jesus and receiving His Spirit. We can find vivid examples of people who change the world around them with the life-giving truth of Christ. Take, for instance, the Philippian jailer who was supposed to keep Paul and Silas imprisoned. Levi, the tax collector who was hated by many. A severely tormented, demon-possessed man that no one could ever restrain. And the Samaritan woman at the well. We could add Roman centurions and Pharisees to the list. Think the Apostle Paul. What do all these people have in common? History records testimonies of each of them bringing other people to faith in Christ. They reached other sinners, entire households, sometimes whole geographic areas with the gospel message. The other thing they have in common is their reputation for sin and or hostility toward the early Christian movement before meeting Jesus. After a genuine encounter with Jesus, no more, no less, they all became empowered people on mission. Not one was told to go to training attend a class, sign up for a program, order evangelistic materials, join a club or small group, or anything like that. They were all immediately qualified to carry out all ministry and missional tasks. They had encountered the real Jesus, and he had transformed them. Even more, it is the timing that drives home the point. When did these people win others to Christ? When were they ready to introduce others to Jesus? When did they lead people they knew who are other sinners to faith, 
In each case, it was within 24 to 48 hours after meeting Jesus. No six-month growing in the Lord course, no four-year ministerial course of study, no ordination process, no seminary, no Bible college, no membership class, nothing but Jesus. That's the result you have of doing discipleship God's way on God's terms. Now, there's more in the chapter that I address and and talk about. I have a section in there about the Apostle Paul, how he launches his ministry without any approval from church authorities. I make a case for simplicity. It closes with a story about my daughter's clay project. And um, to wrap it up, one of the statements um, I make is that the aim is to keep everything as easily reproducible as possible by as many people as possible regardless of age, formal education, training, etc. And I will end this podcast episode and I, as I end the chapter with a, um, an excerpt from the message, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, and it's found on page 64, and it says this. If you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. And I'm afraid that what we have done so much with the way we've set up discipleship and education and spiritual growth programs is we've confused God's power with ourselves. We've thought a little more highly of ourselves than we ought. If you'd like to explore any of these topics in greater depth, then you can leave a comment on any of the episodes. If you want to learn anything more about simple church practices, you can visit a website which is linked in the episode notes called Grace in Motion. If you're interested in supporting the work that's done here on Substack, then you can subscribe and share the Substack. Also, if you want to support or find out more about the book, you can go to Amazon and find out all the ways to purchase it there. Things are linked in the episode notes there as well. You can also post a review of the book as well. But more than anything else, use whatever knowledge, inspiration, or resources you might find in any of this content to help others around you realize God is for you. Thank you so much and have a great day.